Fun, huh? <laughs> Quite the celebration, right? I mean, come on. Aren't you excited, right? Aren't you? Didn't you want to jump up and celebrate too? No? No one? Aaron back in the back. I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready to go, right? So I'm guessing that was like a soccer game. Um, the reason that I know that is, one, there was one little clip that had a little, looked like maybe a soccer game in the background. But two, uh, the fans were overreacting to a score. So you're right. You know, and I think soccer players or soccer fans do that because they don't score very much, right? I mean, it's like you know, if you're going to celebrate, you better do it because you only get one a game, maybe, right? Or maybe two, right? So it's anyway. So yeah. You, did, you didn't want to celebrate with them. You kind of sat back and was like, well, that looks like fun, but you, it was, something was missing. What was missing? Anyone? Go ahead, you can speak. Huh? What were we celebrating, right? Yeah. We didn't know the context, right? I mean, it's like there's all this celebration, but there's no context to know why we're celebrating, right? I mean, part of celebration is that context to know what you're, you know, what you're experiencing and why you're celebrating, right? You can't just celebrate for no reason. Well, maybe you can, right? No, why not? <laughs> we do that a lot too, right? But uh, there, there is something about our celebration that requires a recognition of the context, and, and certainly most of us recognize that truth. And, 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 but sometimes we're tempted maybe just to jump to the end, to the celebration. How many in here uh, are a book reader that likes to, you know, or at least is tempted uh, to, to jump to the last chapter and read the last chapter before you rest, read, read the rest? Yeah. Some of you? Okay. Yeah, we had first service. We had several. Only one. Just you, Jackie. Sorry. You're the oddball out. So, oh, well. Uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that temptation is real, right? For some of us to go, oh, I'd like to see how this ends before I spend all this time re reading the, the middle, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, but we do this in even our own lives sometimes. I think there's that temptation, right? You know, to, you know as a kid especially, right? I, you just want to be an adult, right? Can, can, I do, can we just hurry up and be an adult, right? So that I can have all the benefits and the blessings of being an adult and freedoms, you know, that come with being an adult. But then you get to be an adult and you go, oh, gosh, <laughs> wish I could be a kid again, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, that's, that's the reality, right? You get the responsibility and you go, ooh, this isn't as fun as I thought it was. Um, so, but we do this uh, in times of struggle, too, or times of learning, right? I mean, education, right? You know, Shalem's been going through this for <laughs> some time now, right? And just the desire to just jump to graduation, right? Can we just skip all the classes and all the tests and all the stress <laughs> that goes with that and just go to the graduate, get the piece of paper that says, ah, look, I'm, I'm really smart. Um, yeah, that's that we, you know, so we have these temptations all the time. And that temptation also folds over into our perspective of Jesus, too. Right? I mean, we, we sometimes, especially this time of year, we like to jump to Easter. We, we, we want to go to the celebration, the resurrection. It's, it's, it's done. It's finished. Let's just have a big party, you know. Let's kind of skip everything else and just run to the, to the resurrection part, the, the winning part, the victory part, and the celebration that comes with that. And, 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 you know, this is why we have practiced Lent, and I've encouraged us to do this the last couple of years, is be, because I, I feel like we need to spend time in that preparation to, to recognize that it's not just about the celebration at the end, but that there's a time of struggle until we get to that celebration. That there's a, there's a, we have to get through that tension time. We have to walk through that in order to fully or more fully appreciate the celebration. Uh, so this morning, and, and as I was prepping this week for our message, I, I, I recognized that in the life of Jesus, uh, you know, certainly his resurrection is the highlight. But 
there's a lot of blessings in the life of Jesus before we ever get to the cross. And, and so I wanted to spend some time this morning, first of all, looking at those blessings, to, to not just jump over that, over his life and, and get into the resurrection, but that we would spend some time just taking a moment to look at what those blessings are. That, that even before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, we, there, he was, there was blessings for us in that. Second thing I'd like to do this morning is, is to help us to understand the context Again, again, to enjoy the celebration, we have to understand the context. We need to know why we're celebrating. What are we celebrating about, right? And so this morning, I've actually, I'm going to do a little more creative kind of twist on our message this morning. And so the second half of it, I'm going I'm to read a story to you that is basically a summary of the life of Jesus, or, or at least the events surrounding the life of Jesus, in order for us to recognize, or maybe help for us to recognize, what was going on at that time, the, the Jewish culture and what they were expecting and the, some of the stuff that was happening in the midst of that. So to hopefully, when we get next week to Sunday, we'll have a greater understanding of the context and why we are celebrating and why uh, the resurrection is worthy of celebration and may maybe inspire more celebration out of us as a result. So that's where we're headed this morning. So first of all, blessings uh, it, before the cross, blessings before the cross. The first blessing before Jesus got the cross was this simply the fact that God came to earth, that God was with us, right? I mean, th- this, this was shocking to, to have an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy God who chose to come and take human form and live among us. I mean, do you recognize that? I think we all do, but this is amazing truth about God, that he came and lived with us, that he he wanted to be with us and be in relationship with us. We, we see this in, in Matthew 1.23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amazing. God with us. The blessings from this are, first of all, it, it proves that we are valuable. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message about how we're garbage, right? That, that we have no redeeming value in us, that we individually, on our own, we have, it's not, you know, Jesus walks by us and he sees us and we're just trash. There's nothing in us for him to say, go, oh, well, yeah, that would, that, I, I think I see potential there. No, 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 we are totally garbage. But here is why Jesus picks us up out of the dump. Because we are created by God. We're his he recognizes that piece of garbage as something that he made. It not, didn't make it garbage. He made it beautiful, but it's been garbage. It's made garbage, and so he wants to restore it and, and redeem it and to, and to use it again for the way it's mes- meant to be used. Uh, it reminds me of the car I had, 1978 Oldsmobile 442. Mm-hmm-hmm. Man, it was black. Oh, beautiful. Just jet black, right, with some silver sticker on the side, 442 on the side. Oh, man, it was so good on the back. This is really cool. Like, anyway, it was a great car, right? And I love this car. Glass pack, 16-inch glass packs. Baby, that thing rumbled. 
going down the street. Oh, it was so good. And, you know, you see your friend, you know, you kind of just step on the gas a little bit. You know, it's oh, so good, right? Loved it. Just lived it, right? It was great. But I uh, got married and, you know, things started happening, having kids and this kind of stuff. And the car started to kind of have some issues and eventually it kind of broke down. And I knew some, I knew a little bit about cars, but not enough to fix it. And so it kind of sit in our, sat in our driveway for quite a while. And then it kind of got moved out of the driveway into like basically become a planter. And there's, you know, like weeds, you know, growing up through it and all this kind of stuff. And it's just kind of got to be pretty trashy. And so the neighbors started complaining that, hey, there's this guy with a trash in his front yard. Can we get rid of it? And so we get the call and we're like, oh, we got to take it away. But, but I fought that because even though it was trash, even though it was garbage, even though it didn't run, even though it was no, I mean, it had really no value in itself, it was my car, right? I mean, it's like I had the memories of that car and what it could do and riding down the street and, you know, all the girls that would look at me, you know, no, not really, but uh, anyway, it, it was, it was, you know, all this, it was mine, right? And, and it's similar to, to God, right? He created us, and even though we're kind of garbage and we're not working right and we're, we're just this trash piece, he goes, no, no, wait a second, I, that's mine, and I have created it for something beautiful, and so that's why he reaches in. So God coming to earth in human form, this God with us, the benefit is that it proves our value, but it also proves that God desires relationship with us, right? It, right? He, doesn't just, he doesn't want to just pick us up, you know, and just kind of like without connection. He's like, no, no, I want relationship with this creation that I've made. And so he, he works within us to develop that relationship. We're not just robots, you know? We're not just slaves to God. We are actually his friends, and that is what he calls us into. John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. This is, the re- this is the God that we worship, that he wants to be friends with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to communicate with us and interact with us. He wants to, you know, th- and this is what his presence means. If he didn't want relationship, he wouldn't, come. But because he wanted that relationship, he comes. Finally, uh, it, within God with us, it, it's the blessing, big picture, is the, best, uh, the blessing of the intimacy that we can experience with God. The fact that we have a God that desires that intimate one-on-one time with us. A God who, as we know, post-resurrection sent the Spirit, right, to live within us as well, right, so that we can be one with God. That we can enjoy the presence of God. We are not alone. The second blessing before the cross is uh, uh, the flesh, physical body. The, the fact that Jesus came and took on flesh. He, he took on a human body. He became fully 100% human, right? He, he, wasn't just, he didn't just come down as a spirit, right? He came down as a human being. Hebrews 2.17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. He was, he was like us. Yeah, you know, and John, our, our responsive reading, the, 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 he became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? I mean, this is the perspective that Jesus came down and he had a physical body. And why is this important? Because first of all, it shows that the physical world can be righteous. It's not just sinful. The tendency to perspective back then and even for us today sometimes is to look at the physical world and say, well, it's just all sinful, it's broken, and it's, and it's not good for anything. And, and many of us maybe even are, are longing for heaven because we think we will leave this physical world and this physical exist, existence and only exist spiritually. But this is, this is not what Jesus teaches. This is not what Jesus even did by the fact that he took on flesh. He showed that the physical world around us, the physical bodies are valuable. That they, they can do something more than just sin. They can actually, there's righteousness can exist within them. 
More than that, uh, again, the physical world is, this is a beautiful place, even though it's broken. Even though it's a shadow of what it's meant to be, God is going to redeem it at some t- point. In Revelation 21.1 says, the new heaven and a new earth will be created. And so that we will live physically and spiritually with God for the rest of time. Finally, uh, in the physical blessing part, or physical body part as a blessing, is the, is the blessing of, uh, of tangible love. The fact that God knew that, that we, because we're physical beings, we needed his touch. That, that we have a God who just doesn't just connect with us spiritually, but we have a God who also connects with us physically. That he speaks our love language in essence. And, and he did that through Jesus, but he also continues to do that as we as a body of Christ continue to care and love for each other throughout life's journeys. Next is, uh, next blessing at the cross is growing up. That, that Jesus was born as a baby. He, he had to grow up. He was vulnerable, right? He, he, he had to rely on someone else, and he had to learn these things like language and how to eat and how to walk and all of this kind of stuff that he, he, he had to develop and mature over time. And this is important because it shows the value of that process of growing up. You know, that, that we shouldn't just jump past our kid, you know, our, our, our kid years, our teen years, right? You know, just jump into adulthood. That we would take the time to enjoy that process. That even as we continue to mature in our life, that we don't, again, try to just long for the future when we've got it all figured out, but we would recognize the value of the journey in the time and the struggle and the tension that comes with that. And we would recognize that the maturing process is, is actually a good process. Matter of fact, it's true that there are many things that we will, many advanced things that we can never understand until we've had experiences that lead up to understanding that advanced thing, right? You, you can't just jump in to calculus when you're learning math. You've got to learn the basics first. And it's the same with our life, that, you know, in our relationship with God, that it takes, a pro- it's a process, right? Spiritually, physically, and that process is a good process. Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We will grow. We, it, this is a good thing. We are growing in maturity as a church, as individual believers. Uh, and the real blessing in this growing up piece is that it's the blessing of change. Because we're sinful human beings, the fact that we can change is a great and beautiful and powerful, gracious gift from God. That, that, that we don't have to stay in that place of sinfulness. That we can actually get better and live more righteously over time. That, if we couldn't change, then there, if there was no process of maturity, then we, we, couldn't, we could never get out of that sinfulness. We'd be stuck there forever. All right, the final thing, uh, blessing before the cross is uh, Jesus living by the Spirit. He, he, he lived by the Spirit. You know, we have a tendency to look at Jesus sometimes and say, well, Jesus was God. So, you know, kind of he had an unfair advantage in the sense that, you know, it's easy for him to be righteous and to, you know, avoid and to deal with the temptations that he dealt with and all that because, I mean, he's, he was God, right? But we'd be mistaken to take that, that perspective because the reality is, is he was God, yes, but he was also fully human. And when he came to earth, he chose to, instead of tapping into his divinity in order to live righteously, to tap into the Spirit. He lived by the Spirit day by day, 
seeking to follow the Spirit's leading, to say what the Spirit told him to say. This was the life of Jesus. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 kind of lays this out for us. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own, to his own advantage. Rather, be, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He, he, he allowed himself to not tap into that divinity. He, he, in a sense, handicapped himself. He still had that. He still was God, still fully God. He didn't put that off. He still had all of that, but he chose not to use it. It's like when I was a kid and my dad uh, would play basketball with me and my sister, right? And we were just, you know, I was five, four or five years old. My sister was like seven years old or whatever. So we're just little squirts running around. We play basketball in the house, right? Nerf basketball, right? So you have, you know, up on the door, a little Nerf hoop, you know, Nerf ball, right? And it was two on one, my sister and I against him, right? It was great. You know, we had a good time. But, you know, my dad was, you know, he's not, he's not super tall, but for us, he was really tall. I mean, he's like 5'10", 5'11", you know, and he's a big guy. We're just little scrawny kids. There's no way we could win, right? So what did my dad do? He got down on his knees, right? He said, you know, let's, let's, I, I want to, ex- he wants to experience and allow us to experience this relationship and this, this game at a more equal level, right? And so this is similar to what Jesus did, is that in a sense, he got down on his knees for us so that he could experience what we were experiencing, so that we were in a sense at the same level so that he could appreciate more fully what we as humans have gone through. That's why it says in Hebrews that we have a, we have a, we have a high priest who, who is able to, to understand our temptations. It's because he got on his knees and lived for a while here on the earth as a human being relying on the Spirit. He experienced true temptation. So the reason that this is uh, good news for us, obviously, is living by the Spirit is possible for us because he was a human being who lived by the Spirit and did it perfectly. We, too, as human beings, can live by the Spirit. Now, we can't do it perfectly this side of heaven, but in in eternity, we certainly will. And so we can take comfort and and encouragement from that, that Jesus lived by the Spirit so we can follow his steps. We can do the things that he did. He's worthy of our following because he was fully human and he lived by the Spirit, which is what he asks us to do. So we seek to do the same thing and to follow him in that. We also need to recognize that we have access to the same Spirit that Jesus had. Right? So it's not some you know, lesser spirit. It's not some weaker spirit or some second-class spirit. Right? No, this is, this is the same spirit that Jesus walked by. He calls us to walk by. And we have access to that same spirit, the same power, the same goodness, the same righteousness. All of that is the same. Romans 8, 11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you final kind of piece on this is the blessing of God's power. That, that when God calls us to follow him, when Jesus says, follow me, he then gives us his spirit so that we can follow him. We, we are always empowered to take that step of faith. We are always, you know, God says, come do this, and we say, oh, I can't do that. And he goes, I know you can't do that, but come do this, and I'll give you the power, right? And when we take that step, then we find the spirit shows up, and we, and we have the power to be able to do those things that we never could have done so those are the, some of the blessings before the cross. Now I want to transition to the second kind of half of the message this morning, which is going to be a little bit uh, a different uh, experience for all of you. Uh, because, uh, and, and I, I, you know, just so you know, I'm gonna, if, if this doesn't go well, just all you want, I want you all to remember that it was Wanda that brought me here. Okay, so um, just, just, yeah, just blame her if it doesn't go well. <laughs> So that means you've got to get your shots in quick, all right? Um, 
So again, my, my hope with this second part of the message is to uh, help us to understand the context of, uh, of the cross and of resurrection. The, again, we're 2,000 years removed, and, and that makes it even harder for us to understand the context. And In a sense, we look back through the lens of Scripture, and, and sometimes all we see is the resurrection. And we don't understand what was going on culturally and what was going on with the Jews and what was going on with the individual, you know, the disciples and the Pharisees. We don't understand all of that. And so we, we lose sometimes that sense of what is the context of this great celebration. And so uh, I, um, I felt led to write this summary this week um, of, of the life of Jesus, but I, I, I want, I'm, I'm writing it from the, it's written from the perspective of kind of the people, of the culture, uh, from, not instead of from the life, from the perspective of Jesus. So Jesus obviously is the main point of the story, but as we go through, it'll be more kind of what is, what is going on behind the scenes in the, in the lives of these people. Um, so anyway, so that's what we're going to do. I have some images that will come up on the screen. They may be helpful to you, uh, just different uh, parts of Jesus's life that we're going to talk, I'll be reading about that will just give an image up there. You can look at it, and some of them, for some of you, that might be helpful. Some of you, it, the pictures might be a distraction, so just don't look, them in, look at them if that is the case. Um, but I am going to read you this story. Uh, let me begin now. After 400 years of silence from the heavenly realms, the people of God floundered in the waters of irrelevancy. Hope that God would remember them and come restore their prominence was all but gone. Most Jews fell into a cold religiosity, comforted by the familiar routine, but experiencing no joy in it. All but the most zealous accepted that their position in the world would never change, that God had indeed forgotten them. But in the midst of despair, in the moment when hope hung by a thread, angels burst onto the scene. They come announcing that a virgin would be with child and would bear a son and who would be called Emmanuel. The news sent shockwaves through the Jewish nation as hope rises that their decades of oppression might finally come to an end. Within the year, a woman named Mary, the wife of Joseph, has a baby boy, and they name him Jesus. Angels once again appear and announce his birth, and people from all across the known world hear of and come visit the baby Jesus. They come to worship him and bring extravagant gifts meant for a king. But then silence. Over the next 30 years, there is once again nothing. No signs or wonders. No angelic visits. Even Jesus seems uninterested in having anything to do with being a king. He certainly has rare wisdom and understanding of God's word, but he's content to be a simple carpenter. All the anticipation at the birth of the child fades away and serves only to add a cynicism to their numb religion. Then, at 30 years of age, Jesus goes to see his cousin in the desert, John the Baptist, they call him. He is a man who isolates himself from the rest of the world and preaches a radical message of repentance. 
He offers baptism for those who are convicted and repent and condemnation to the hypocritical religious leaders that come to see the spectacle. Jesus observes this strange cousin at work and seems impressed, even moved by his message. He comes forward to receive the baptism of repentance. But John adamantly refuses to baptize him. He says to Jesus, it is I who should be baptized by you. But after some convincing, he relents and dips Jesus into the water. Then suddenly the man, Jesus, who had entered the world with such flair and expectation, but who had become nothing of consequence, is thrust into notoriety again. As he comes out of the water, a bright light overpowers the sun's rays, and the Spirit of God descends from the heavens and lands on Jesus. A voice thunders, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The words are spoken so powerfully that those standing by are driven to their knees, cowering in fear. The words continue to resonate over the surface of the water for several more seconds, and the dozen or so people nearby continue to protect their ears from its intensity. Gradually, the light and the noise begins to fade, and they are finally able to rise to their feet. The brightness of the light that originally centered in the heavens now seems to be emanating from the face of Jesus. It continues to fade until there ceases to be any visible evidence of what just occurred. Everyone stands in stunned silence, afraid to speak and unable to take their eyes off Jesus. Without saying a word, he exits the water and heads deeper into the wilderness. The people remember the miraculous events of Jesus' birth, and although they'd long ago given up hope that he'd amount to anything, with this latest display of power, hope, is instantly restored. Six weeks later, the excited buzz of what had happened to Jesus's, at Jesus' baptism had taken a decidedly worrisome tone. For since that day, no one had seen Jesus. He had disappeared into the wilderness some 40 days ago without a trace. Some believed he'd been taken directly to heaven like Elijah, while others assumed he'd been eaten by wild animals or got lost and simply starved to death. But no matter one's perspective, Jesus had become a name one would speak with the sad shake of the head. Then one day he is spotted walking along the Sea of Galilee, Two of John's disciples are with him, and he invites some fishermen to join him who, without much argument, agree. The city is once again filled with joyful chatter and speculation about who Jesus is. Were the prophecies at his birth going to finally prove true? Was this carpenter's son more than just a man? Would he be the one who'd finally set them free? Over the next several months, Jesus journeys from city to city, teaching a similar message as his cousin. He boldly proclaims, the kingdom is at hand, and regularly quotes scripture, giving meanings and perspectives that no one has ever heard. Jesus also has miraculous power and regularly heals people of all types of maladies and even drives out demons. This draws large crowds of people numbering into the thousands. 
one evening in a remote place without any stores and way to make bread, he is somehow able to fill the bellies of 5,000 plus people. So much so, they even had 12 basketful left over. By the end of the year, Jesus has become a hero to the people. Although some of the messages were hard to understand and seemed to be opposite of what the religious leaders were teaching, his healings, criticism of the broken religious system, and a compassion for the poor draws the masses everywhere he goes. Talk of the Messiah coming to free the people from the tyranny of Rome and ushering in the kingdom of God intensifies. And stories of the dramatic events surrounding Jesus' birth and fav- become a favorite gossip in the marketplace. Despite the fame Jesus and his disciples enjoyed during the first year of ministry, things quickly begin to change in year two. The crowds still flock to wherever Jesus is, but now there is a rising faction of critics. He regularly, his regular accusations and condemnations of the religious leaders, most recently punctuated by his violent outburst in the temple during Passover, has resulted in him being labeled an enemy of the church. He continues to walk freely from city to city, but is no longer welcome in Jerusalem. However, just as passionately as the Pharisees hate Jesus, his followers and especially his disciples love him. He continues to teach large crowds, and they continue to come to listen, watch, and be healed. Some crowds even seek to crown him as their king, and despite his refusals, the mob has pressed him to accept their invitation. In the third year of ministry, the crowds seem to become a burden to Jesus, and he seeks more and more to break away from them in order to spend intimate times of teaching and friendship with the twelve. All the time they have spent together and all that they have seen and done together has created an unbreakable bond. None of his disciples will forget the amazing power they experienced when he sent them out to proclaim his message on their own. Each pair came back with shocking stories of miracles that were done through them and hundreds who believed their message. Even those who struggled to speak clearly found that the words just poured out of them with ease. Upon their return to Jesus' side, they excitedly told the stories of victory. Every one of them was amazed at their accomplishments. At this point, the 30 years of anonymity had long been forgotten. All anyone can remember is the last couple years of amazing power and miracles that seemed to happen daily. Peter expresses the extent to which the disciples have bought into his ministry and teaching when he proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. In their minds, the evidence is overwhelming, and the obvious conclusion is that the Messiah is here. However, a few months later, everything changes. It is a week before the Passover, and Jesus, who has been avoiding Jerusalem for some time due to the threats by the religious leaders, prepares to make his return. The masses still love Jesus, but they are increasingly demanding more access, more miracles, more political disruption. He seems to capitulate to the crowd by entering Jerusalem on a colt, 
symbolizing his acceptance of their calls for him to be their king. The seething Pharisees look on as the people celebrate his entrance into Jerusalem by casting their jackets on the ground before him and hailing him as their king. Everyone believes the restoration of the kingdom of God is imminent and Jesus is the one who will usher in the resurrection of the nation of Israel. The disciples recognize the danger they are in despite enjoying the favor of the people. They know that enemies of the church have a tendency to end up in jail or mysteriously go missing. But that's not the only danger. With the loud celebrations and calls for Jesus to be crowned king, there is a likelihood that the Romans will take notice and seek to stomp out yet another Jewish rebellion. The twelve spend an anxious week following Jesus through the city, constantly keeping an eye out for guards of both the church and the city. Four days later, they gather together with Jesus to celebrate the Passover. Jesus' mood is more solemn than any of them had ever remembered. He keeps speaking as though he will be leaving them soon and even insinuates one of them will at some point betray him and another will deny him. They all voice their protests and assure him of their unwavering support, come what may. Judas slips out without a word leaving the others to assume he's caring for some details of their stay. As he leaves, Jesus stands, walks to the door, and picks up the wash basin. He then returns to the table and kneels next to one of the disciples. They sit in stunned silence as he takes the role of a slave and one by one washes the feet of each of his disciples. Peter is the only one who protests but quickly consents after a brief debate. A little while later, Jesus leads them all to one of his favorite places to prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane. While there, a, a darkness falls over the atmosphere. More than just the deepening blackness of the night, it's a tangible heaviness that comes upon Jesus and his disciples. Several times, Jesus retreats to isolation in obvious turmoil. The eleven can't quite make out his prayers, but the intensity of his tone unsettles them and fear creeps into their hearts. After his third struggle in prayer, he returns to his friends, stoic and unemotional. He walks past them and in a near monotone voice says, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The disciples quickly get up and follow him. It is only then that they see the dozens of torches coming down the road toward them. The adrenaline begins pumping and the struggle they had with sleep just a few moments before immediately retreats at the call to defend their master, their teacher, their friend. Peter is the first to make a move and with a flash of iron, blood spurts and the battle begins. But before any further damage can be done, Jesus yanks Peter back and reaches forward with a gentle hand and heals the wounded soldier. The eleven are shocked to see Judas standing in the middle of the soldiers. He slowly approaches Jesus and then pauses for just a second before leaning in and kissing him on the cheek. Judas takes a step back and the eleven watch in horror 
as the soldiers bind Jesus and take him away. Overcome by fear, Jesus' friends flee from the garden in search of a place to hide, except for Peter. Peter follows the soldiers and Jesus, but remains in the shadows. His previous defense of Jesus with the sword could certainly be seen as an act of courage, but now with his slinking in the darkness, one wonders if he unsheathed it for a more selfish reason. All doubts of his motive disappear when he is recognized three times as a follower of Jesus, but he fervently denies the accusation. The next day, Jesus' final day, is filled with deception, disappointment, and despair. The religious leaders put into play their well-orchestrated plan to kill the man who spent three years attacking their religion, beliefs, and positions. It comes together perfectly, and by the end of the day, they've rightly punished the false prophet and proven Jesus was not the Messiah. But more importantly, they've regained their control over the people. The people who had crowned their king five days earlier feel tricked and taken advantage of. This man, Jesus, who is filled with supernatural power, deep wisdom of God's word, and boldly stands up to the Pharisees time and again, now does nothing? The city is overrun with Jews for the celebration of the Passover. All he needs to do is give the word and the Romans will be ousted in a manner of hours. But he just sits there. If he's not going to lead us to victory, then what good is he? They with one voice join the chanting of the Pharisees. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. At the news of Jesus' death, the eleven are devastated. Filled with fear that the Pharisees would likely seek to jail or kill them for their support of Jesus, they stay off the streets and huddle together. But even worse than the fear is the crushing despair over knowing the one who they put their hope and belief in was a fraud. Embarrassment, anger, Frustration, shame, all cycle through their hearts as they try to figure out where they went wrong. How could we have been so deceived? How could we have given up so much for this man? Was anything he said true? How are we ever going to restore our reputations? Will it ever be safe for us to return home? For the next two days, they remain hidden. Their minds and emotions continue to swirl. But they've accepted the fact that Jesus was not who they thought he was. Some of the fear has diminished and given way to a rising hopelessness. Their world has fallen back into irrelevance. The heavens have once again gone silent. Worship team, please come forward. May we sit in 
that silence. We sit in that tension point before the cross and immediately after the cross before the resurrection. May may we this week as we walk through Passion Week, may we uh, take that silence in our times with God. That we would ask Him to help us to, to get in touch a little bit more with what was going on here. To, to get in, to, to understand that context a little bit more deeply. Being 2,000 removed from this original story, we can get cold as we look back. But may the Lord stir our hearts this week. May we feel that tension more so this week than we normally do. May we, may we do that so that next Sunday when we meet again, that we'll more fully understand the context of that celebration. That, that we would be able to more fully cheer and get excited and celebrate together and with Jesus, His resurrection from the dead.